Welcome to part two of behind the scenes in plastic surgery. So how do you handle it? Uh, we know that insurance doesn't usually cover the plastic surgery. It's something that you want to get, not something that you need medically done. So what happens then? Uh, do they have to pay again or you make some compensation? You help them? What goes on in that case? Uh, it, it, it's a little bit of a case by case basis. Okay. So I'll, I'll admit that. The second factor that comes in is, do you have your own surgery center, right? So unfortunately, if you don't have your own surgery suite, surgery center in your building, now you have to bring it to a hospital or a surgery center. They don't really care about the fact you had a complication or the patient had a complication or something didn't come out right. Um, they are going to say, sorry, we get paid. got to pay us. got to pay anesthesia. you got to pay surgery. And that's got to be got to be taken care of by some someone. In some cases, the surgeons say, OK, I'll, I'll take care of it. In a lot of cases, the surgeons say, I'm sorry, complications happen. We told you beforehand complications happen. And you might you. In fact, most offices, mine included, say if you have a complication, if you have to return to the operating room, I did your surgery and you went out and partied all night long and wound up with a hematoma. Sorry, you know, I got to go take you to the surgery and wash the hematoma out and you're going to pay for that. Um, so it's it's really a case by case basis, and then you know I have my own surgery center, I got my own building. I can absorb more costs at a, at a, at a reasonable rate. I'm, and some patients, I'll say, I got it. You know, I make a ton of money. This is a one off for you. I know this was a challenge to get to, but you really wanted it. This puts you over the top. I got it. I'll take care of it. And frankly, you know, patients who are sweet and kind and nice are easier to do that for than patients that are just horrible. You know, you just, it's, it's hard to be nice to someone who's such who's, who's not going to be nice. So there's a lot of factors that come into it. Most of us that I'm aware of usually say, look, I'm happy to take care of you. I won't charge you a surgeon's fee, but there will be a facility fee. And most people are reasonable and say, okay, that's good. Because there's anesthesia people, there's nursing people, whatever. Some people don't understand that complications happen. They just think if it's not perfect, it's the doctor's fault, which is just not true. Uh, and then sometimes you have to have a conversation about that. And most of the time it winds up okay, and sometimes it doesn't. So. so it sounds like a fair compensation in the end. Uh, everyone going into the surgery should know that complications happen, and surgeon will say, well, this complication is rare, but when it happens to you, it's not so rare anymore because you weren't expecting it. So uh, you definitely have to have good conversation with your surgeon before going out for any kind of surgery. And while we're talking about it, you mentioned the belly button. And we all see these people saying, oh, that's a tummy tuck belly button, tummy tuck belly button. It has a round shape. So why do most of these belly buttons look like that? Uh, I think I make good belly buttons, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's genetics. You know, patient's skin doesn't heal the way you want. Some people pride themselves in, in their finesse about their buttons, and some people really do phenomenal belly buttons. Uh, there are vertical belly buttons. There are little U-shape or V-shape belly buttons. Um, my way of thinking about it is, is like, and this applies to all plastic surgery, is if it falls into a normal, natural-looking line, you don't tend to see it, or a layperson doesn't see it. If it doesn't, you see it. So, for example, if I'm going to do a brow lift, you see my brow? You see where my hairline is? Oh, yeah, wait, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're going to do a brow lift, right, you usually do it along the hairline. We make an irregular incision. We don't make a cut across. 
because you'll look at someone and say, what's that? What's that line? You know, your, your subconscious says you don't see straight lines on bodies. And so you don't see it. You, you do see it. It just jumps out at you. It, it hits you in the face. But if we can learn to draw those or make those incisions into natural lines of the body, then we tend not to see it. We do a skin cancer on the face. If we can drop the scar into the nasolabial fold, we don't see it. And on and on and on. There's also directions of incisions uh, and, and dermatomes. So there's lines of the body, lines of minimal tension, et cetera, that um, scar better. We can make an incision in the midline of the forehead, it scars beautifully. We make a midline, a scar off to the side, it scars horribly. It just so happens that this scar is well, this one doesn't. Scar under the breast, scar is great if it's transverse, scar on the eyelid, transverse, up and down, not so good. So there's lots of that. We learned that in plastic surgery. But in addition to that, there's how you defat underneath. Uh, and so, it's, so it sits down. Do you put sutures in to bring the midline down to create a little bit of a groove? Um, how meticulous you are with your suturing? Uh, do you drop that scar down deep so you don't see the scar? Or do you allow it to float up and you see the scar around and it's really obvious? Um, and then despite all that, some people just don't scar well. So there's, there's lots of factors. But you, you should first you know, understand the, the genetics, the tendencies of that particular racial profile, um, the technique, um, healing properties, all the stuff that we, we learn about and we should be doing well. And what about the placement? Can you just place belly button anywhere or do you keep it where naturally it is? Mm -hmm. Most of the time in most surgeons' hands, we start out by making a circular incision around the belly button, okay? Then we lift up all the skin and fat off the abdominal wall, like the hood of a car. Then we salt the muscles. We pull down the extra skin. We cut off the extra skin and fat. Maybe, maybe not. We do some liposuction. Then we determine where that belly button is on the abdomen because it doesn't move. Everything moves around it. It doesn't move. You can shift it one way or the other. If the belly button tends to be on one side, you can shift it a little bit by sewing the muscles on one side a bit more. But then we make an incision in the skin and we bring it back through. So the belly button, in most cases, doesn't move. Everything moves around it. And you'll swear that it moved because you see more skin below. You see more skin above and your eye, you know, plays It's like an optical it. illusion. It's exactly right. On the other hand, there is something called a floating belly button technique where we don't make the incision around it, which is nice, you don't have a scar around your belly button. We elevate the skin and we cut through the belly button stalk where it attaches to the abdominal wall. We cut right through it and we cut, we, we elevate all everything all the way up. We sew up the muscles and then we sew that stalk, that belly button back down from underneath. And sometimes when we do that, that belly button floats and it shifts downward a little bit. And I've done those in the past. I'm very, very few selected patients. I've, I've become, um, cautious with that. I don't do it as much as I used to uh, because sometimes that belly button shifts down a bit too much and it just looks unusual. It looks abnormal. And how about the horizontal scar placement? Sometimes we'll see, as you say, the belly button is too high or the horizontal scar is too high. So what does it depend on? And can you just put that scar anywhere or it has something to do with anatomy of every single individual? So there, there's a couple of things. Uh, for example, if someone has a very long torso, right? Um, and when we're lifting up that skin and pulling it down, that hole from where the belly button was might not clear that lower incision. And so we've got to do something with that belly button, and we might wind up with a little bit of a vertical scar. 
that happens occasionally with really tall men or women. And I'm going to say women most of the time because that's 90% of my patients. Um, the other thing that, that, that falls, that, that Im, Im impacts where everything's going to be is what scars they already have on their abdomen. So if they have a C-section scar or a hysterectomy scar or a appendectomy scar that's higher on the abdomen, um, we may or may not be able to get that scar out. Typically, we, we can, or it's too low, and that will affect where that ultimately a scar winds up. I want to say that most of the time, it's actually planning of, your, of, the, of the tummy tuck. Um, a, lot of, a lot of doctors, uh, I think it's changed recently, but I think a lot of doctors stand their patient up, and they just take their marking pen, and they mark where they think the tummy tuck is going to be. And that's a terrible way to do it. Because when you close your wound, most of the time it's going to pull both directions and it's going to pull that scar up too high. So either you're, you've got to fixate, fix that scar by your deep sutures, you know, tacking it down so that tissue does not rise up, which can cause problems down below if it's pulled up too high. So th those, those are the kind of things we're looking at to make sure that scar stays where I want. Oftentimes I'll say to my patients, bring in the kind of panties you love to wear or the bathing suit bottoms you love to wear. And then when I mark them, I have them hold their tummy up and that simulates the tension that when we close so that it won't pull further because I'm, I'm simulating what that tension is. And then I'll mark where their bathing suit or their panties are and I'll plan my, my, my abdominal plastic scar within that panty line. And so I, I, that's, what, that's how I do it to try and make sure it stays there. Very well. I also saw one, saw one of the comments where somebody asked, how does it smell in the OR? Since you're working with living tissue, is it strong odor? And what does it smell like inside? You know, um, I say you know a lot. Let me, let me, let me read this. <laughs> <laughs> so what does it smell like in the OR? I don't know. It smells fine to me. But, you know, we, we use cautery in the OR. And sometimes because I have, I have my own building and my OR is in the back of my building. It's a full OR, but there's a couple of doors that open up into the clinic area. And my, my, my partner will be in, in front or, or the esthetician or someone seeing patients. And I'll hear them come and close all the doors. Because while we've got a very uh, uh, robust fan system that's sucking out all the air and changing and whatever, the aroma, the smell of doing a breast reduction in particular, right? You're cutting through tissue with a, with a device that's cauterizing as it cuts. It creates a plume of smoke. We try and suction that smoke, but it, it gets out in the room. And sometimes it smells, it smells terrible. But, and, and anybody can relate to this. You know, you're, you're, you're in the kitchen, you know, doing your floor. You're in the garage working on something. And people walk in and they go, oh, my God, don't you smell that such and such, that, that, that cleanser, that this or that. You're in it. You don't, after a while, you don't smell it. So when you're in the environment, you don't smell it at all. Um, although some people have a more sensitive nose. I, it's not infrequent in my scrub tech. Been with me for years will say, Oof, that's, that's a bad odor, you know? You don't smell it. Yes, so uh, you already uh, mentioned, uh, let's talk about it a bit more on Instagram, the results that surgeons are showing. Like anyone, work-related, look-related, we always show the best of the best. So uh, do you think these results are real? What do you think about surgeons editing videos, photos? What do you think about that? I think it's a big problem. It creates expectations amongst patients that are very, very unrealistic. Do you know that in some countries, before and after pictures are banned? They're banned. If you, as a physician, show before and after pictures, they're either taken down by a third party or the, 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 the 
the um, medical society that you belong to will come after you with grave uh, repercussions. You cannot show them. I, I believe it's like in Korea, maybe Japan, no before and after pictures. And others, other countries are trying to do this as well. And I'll tell you, uh, I think Instagram is starting to move in this direction. But um, a lot of Photoshopping goes on, a lot. Um, I remember one um, person I know who's a really good surgeon, um, belongs to a group, and I, I guess a lot of their stuff goes out and gets uh, modified. And a lot of us use marketing people to help us. You know, we're too busy, and we send them our pictures, and they, and they post them. I had to call the surgeon because it's a friend and say, you might want to look at that post. Why? There's no belly button. Yeah, they, 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 they screwed up when they were Photoshopping. They just Photoshopped the belly button, clean off the tummy tuck. They were busy trying to hide something and they just kind of slipped and didn't pay attention. And you know, great looking after me, except there was no belly button. And that, that's an extreme result. But, um, yeah, it goes on a lot. Uh, that butt's a little bit rounder, a little bit fuller. There's no little divots. There's no whatever. You know, along the same lines, you you see these very, very amazing looking results. All the scars covered with 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 uh, with flesh colored tape. No, they're not, not going to show their scars because it subliminally affects you. You know, as, as a lay person, I don't want to see those scars. Um, and sometimes I cover mine. Sometimes I want to show them. I think I make good scars. Of course, then you have people say, oh, that's terrible, but it's, it's fresh, it's brand new. But, you know, if you look very carefully, it's a fine line. So I'm trying to show you it's a really fine line. Um, I, you know, a, a wound well done is actually everted, it's lifted up. So you get a little shadow and it'll look terrible on a picture. So there's, there's so many things that go into it that, that patients don't know about. But yeah. Yeah, but they should know how scars look like after. They shouldn't expect that it's perfect or flesh color. Like there's going to be some blood. You're going to have a hard time for the first couple of days, weeks. I think it's really good that you want to show it, even though Instagram started banning us because of being real and uh, educating others. Yeah, I, I, it's a shame because I think it's, I think it's the real world. And, yeah. and we have a problem in our world anyway with shading or, or protecting people from reality, you know, whether it's kids and, and how they perform in, in their sports, everyone gets an A, or whether it's, you know, adults and everyone's perfect and a darling and a princess or, you know, well, I won't get on my platform, but, you know, we, okay. have to, we have to have a little bit more reality in our world, don't we? Yeah, for sure. A reality check. And how many of your surgical results you post on your page? Do you show something that you're not 100% happy with, but you still want to show others the realistic view and what can happen, or you just show the best of the best? Uh, I, I tend to show the better results, I'll be honest with you. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we get a lot of patients in who are not, you know, forgive me, please forgive me, are not the most attractive humans. You know, they're a little bit bigger, a little bit rounder. And mind you, there are bigger people. Some people are bigger. Some people are smaller. Some people are skinny. Naturally, right? I, I tell my patients, look, some people are, are Rottweilers and some people are Great Danes and some people are Pekingese. So we got all different things. Um, but, you know, some people are, are not the, the, the are not model worthy. You know, we all know I'm not model worthy. I'm, I'm, I'm not super tall, you know, um, or I don't have a I don't have great hair, you know. Um, so we tend to show our, our better pictures, but sometimes I'll just show regular people because look, there's lots of regular people out there and I want them to see that 
we can think, improve things nicely. So I think a lot of my tummy tucks are kind of regular, you know, soccer moms who, who don't have the perfect body. Um, I think when you when you have social media that only shows these, you know, models and these, you know, and I, mean, I don't even know if it's their own patients, but these perfect looking things. It's, all, it's, all, it's almost like reviews. You look at reviews and everything's a two, a one sentence or two sentence reviews and they've got 500 five star reviews. Going, really? I, this doesn't sound right to me. Yeah. You got to put your filter on. Um, could you tell me which patients did you say no to and said just they're not right to get the surgery? So perfectionists, if, if, you know, if I see someone who's, who's a perfectionist, I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll take them on as cases. And sometimes, you know, they're ones that I'll say, I don't think I'm the right doctor for you. And, and I, and it's something that I've had to learn to be able to say over the years, because you know, we're, we all got A's in school. We were all at the top of our class and saying, I can't, or I'm, I'm not good enough, or I, I, I don't, or, or I don't want to do your case. You know, we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want to be rude. We don't want to, you know, it's, 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 um, it's an ego thing. We don't want to say, I can't do it. I, of course I can do it. But sometimes you have to say, I'm not, and so, so, so developing the right verbiage to convey it safely in the right safe way that doesn't offend anybody but gets you out of the situation uh is, is is helpful sometimes doctors will just say yeah we can do that it's going to be uh you know fifty thousand dollars it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars mind you some people that charge a hundred thousand dollars anyway but um you know it, it, some some doctors just double triple quadruple the price and i tell i tell my residents over the years don't do that because one of those ones are going to say okay and it's going to be like, oh, I just made a lot of money, but this patient is going to be horrible for a year. And the patient and, and my staff's going to go crazy. And I'm going to get phone calls every every day constantly because the patient is just too perfectionistic or, or just never understood what was happening, had expectations here when really they should have had expectations here. Um, so 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 there's that. There's young patients, like, like I alluded to before, uh, young patients that come in who are who are overweight. We're not here to fix overweight, okay? You don't come to us because you're overweight. You go to the gym, you get on a diet, you get things under control, get a good night's sleep, get some exercise, eat clean. All the things you know you should be doing, stop drinking so much alcohol. It's not hard, I mean, we know what it is. I'm not, I'm not talking about you've gained 15, 20 pounds, you've had three babies and you know, you, you're running after kids and, and you've got a full-time job and who has time for all this. I get that. But, you know, so so being overweight and you're 20 and 22 and 23, you know, I've raised kids. I understand, you know, how it's, how it's you know, especially with social media, you know, impacting you. And I want to look like this. It's, it's a lot of pressure, particularly on young women and more and more on young men. But I, I, you've got to redouble your efforts and give them a big hug and say, you can do this. You can come back and visit me in three months. Here's a way to do it. We'll send you a diet email. People I admire and how they do diet. But they don't need surgery. You know, they, they need to get their life in order. That is very nice of you. And how many surgeries do you perform a day? We already talked about being tired. So how many of you do realistically? And what does your day look like from uh, having patients come to you after surgeries, performing surgeries, having lunch? So one day in your life. All right. 
So on Mondays, Wednesdays, so I operate on 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 uh, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Typically, today was a crazy, weird day that I, I had off, and I'm like, thank God, I got some time off. Um, but typically, I operate Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Typically, I see patients Monday afternoon and Tuesday afternoon. On Monday and Wednesday and Friday, I wake up at 4 a.m. Is it because of the gym? Yes, at 4:25. <laughs> at 4:25, I'm at my workout partner's house and he's got this great uh, area down the middle of his road with like a walking path in the middle of it it's one mile long and we run intervals so we run full out for a block then we walk for a block and then we run full out for a block and we walk for a block sometimes we run the whole two miles so that's what i do on monday wednesday friday then uh, we finish that in about 20 minutes 25 minutes then we drive a few blocks we go to where we work out and on mondays we do legs we do core every day we do core and then we do legs on Monday, back on Tuesday, chest on Wednesday, legs again on Thursday, Friday we do arms, Saturday we take off, shoulders on, on Sunday. Always we do core first and then we do all those. So six days a week, when I'm in town, I'm doing that, all that. Then I start my day. So if it's a, if it's a clinic day, I start clinic at nine. So I've got a little bit of a breather in there. On surgery days, typically we're starting at 7.30. So if I start at 7.30, I've got to be at my clinic at 7 to meet my patient, review the notes, make sure the OR is okay, my staff's, everyone's, everyone's lined up, ready to go, go over what we're doing that that particular case. Do I want to turn the patient over? If not, what's going to happen so the anesthesia not, knows what kind of anesthesia they can give, et cetera. Then I'm going to mark my patient and bring them in. And like tomorrow, tomorrow I'm doing one case from 7.30 in the morning till 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. It's a big case, you know, it's a, it's a big, 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 big case. I think we got one short case after that. So how many cases a day? It depends. It's a mommy makeover, it might be one or two. Uh, you know, I, an average, time we talking an average weight person is about an hour and a half or two hours. Um, at, at a breast augmentation, you know, maybe that's three and a half hours. I can do two of those in one day. Um, but some people do three uh, because they're running till seven o'clock at night. We talked about that earlier. That's a bad yeah. idea, in my opinion. In my opinion, it makes you a lot of money, but it's a bad idea. Um, so on some days if I'm doing, you know, a bunch of breast augmentations. I could do five or six because they take me about 35, 40 minutes a piece. You know, do we stop for lunch? It varies. You know, if we can fit it in the day, we're running a little head, you know, it, 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 it just varies. Um, oftentimes I'll send my scrub tech out and say, okay, I'm going to be doing this for a while. You go eat and she'll go eat. And unfortunately we're going to eat in 10 or 15 minutes and come back in. And then when she comes back in, I'm going to step out and eat. My anesthesia person's there. My circulating's there. I'm in the next room. I'm just going to catch a bite to eat. And then, you know, come back in, finish up. We're going to then do our other cases. We've got about 15 to 20 minutes between cases. And because I have my own OR in my own building, sometimes my nurse will step in and say, I've got Mrs. So-and-so here. You need to come check this wound for me. You need to check this breast for me. And that's a great time because in between cases, I can visit with a patient or two and check on some things, talk to my staff, my office manager. So it keeps it very efficient in my setting. People that don't have their own OR, they're going to the hospital, something's going on in the office, it might not be convenient. So it's, it's, it's a whole different lifestyle. And I usually finish up around three, sometimes four, uh, finish up my notes, make sure everything's good, and head out, um, head home. If I don't work out in the morning, it doesn't happen. So that's why I get up in the morning and do it. If I try and work out in the afternoon, I have every intention of working out, but it never happens. So I've trained myself. I've got to do it in the morning. 
And so come home and then my wife and I often will go for a walk. We, we walk most days, usually about two to three miles, review the day, talk about the kids. Um, I've got two grown children live probably 15, 20 minutes from me. And I've got four grandchildren now. Uh, what's going to happen this weekend? Are we going to see the grandkids? We're thankful we've got that. And then um, during the week, we're almost always eating at home. We make our own dinners. Um, I'm the sous chef. I do all the chopping and cutting. And um, she's the, the main chef. Occasionally gets flipped, but mostly it's that way. And then, you know, like in all people, we watch great stuff on Netflix or, or HBO or whatever. And then, or I do some reading. Um, sometimes I have work to catch up on, but usually not. And because I get up so freaking early, I'm in bed by like 8.30 or 9. I mean, you have says, to get really? the rest. She says, really? She's accepted it already. She's up to like 11, watching movies, reading. She's an avid reader. We both are, but she's much more than me. So that's my day. That's what I do. So it sounds like you have everything planned well. And uh, also, how many patients you operated on in your whole career? Do you know the number? Oh, no, I don't know the number. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Oh, actually, actually, um, I do know nowadays because I do, you know, the past 20 years, I guess I do all my cases in my own OR. It, it, it depends upon how much vacation I'm going to take. This year, I'm going to take I'm taking a lot of vacation. Last year, not so much. But um, typically, I think the number is like between like, like about 400 cases a year. I think it's I think it's somewhere around there. Plus or minus. Okay, very well. So whatever so that it, is, 400, 400 times 30, 3 times 4, 1,200, 12,000? Yeah. So that sounds like a lot. And you have a lot of working experience for sure. Yeah, yeah. Been doing it a long time. Now, we talked about these surgeons not meeting the patients uh, before the surgery, just the day of the surgery, whatever. So doing body surgery is very challenging, takes a lot of hard work, dedication. And people all know that surgeons have help in the OR from technicians, from other doctors. And we heard some horror stories where uh, the main surgeon or surgeon who has the clinic doesn't perform it, but then somebody else comes to do it. So could, could you tell us, what do you think about this? Is this ethical? And how much of the work you actually share uh, with your workers? Okay, so that's a couple of questions there. So I think what you're talking about is itinerant surgers, surgery. So itinerant surgery is extremely uh, unethical. Um, that, that means, you know, uh, I've got a famous name and people are coming to see me and they think I'm operating on them. But I'm running three operating rooms, you know, and I'm I'm tripling my my income. It's it always comes back to the money, doesn't it? Um, you know, and and there's been horror stories about you know trauma uh, back surgeons that do that, and and I, I guess plastic surgeons do it as well. Um, you know, I know a surgeon here in town who has two operating rooms, and he's very well known, and he and he does good work. Um, he, he works in his one operating room until he gets to the point where it's all sort of set up and the key sutures are all placed. And then he leaves and the first assist um, finishes up all the skin closures. I think that's okay. The doctor's in the next room. The assistant's been with him for years and years and years. So beautifully. We as plastic surgeons like to say that most of the plastic surgery happens underneath the skin. Skin closure is like, you know, we can train anybody to do that. And that's to a large extent really true. Um, there's still some finesse things in how to do it. Um, 
So, th so there's that, which I think is okay on, on a case-by-case -case basis. But if you're lining them up and you've got three operating rooms and you're doing 20 cases a day because you got, you know, junior surgeons doing your cases for you and the patients don't know that, that's extremely unethical. It's probably illegal in some countries, but it's, it's, it's horribly unethical. Thank you. And uh, on a little brighter topics, have you ever had any plastic surgery done? If not, have you ever thought about getting one? I've never had any plastic surgery done. I've had some facials. Um, I've had some like uh, um, um, RF microneedling. I've had some, I think I had, I had a, a light chemical peel. I'd like to get my eyes done. You know, that's the, sort of the first thing that goes is your eyelids as you get older. My partner is a, he's board certified in ENT, uh, facial plastic surgery and full plastic surgery. And he does a lot of facelifts and, and really well known. He, I would let him do my eyes in a second. But I told you my schedule, when, when would I do this? So if I'm not operating, if I'm not seeing patients, I'm with my grandchildren or I'm traveling. And every time I, and then, you know, to do it, I've got to recover for a week, you know, maybe it'll be black and blue and maybe it won't, whatever. So I, I, I keep on saying I want to get my eyelids done, but I haven't done it yet. I, I, I wonder sometimes if I'll ever do it, but uh, no. It seems like you just don't have enough time for it. And I think actually it's a very common topic that, these plastic surgeons don't really get plastic surgery done, even though they're the ones performing it. So why do you think is it like that? Is it because of the time or is it because they're aware of all the complications so they don't want to risk it? What's going on there? You know, that's a, that's a, that is really a very insightful question. And I think that gets very existential, actually. Um, I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Maybe, maybe, you know, you've seen so much stuff that you're you're concerned about that that one-off. Look, you, you go look at ophthalmologists. You'll very you'll they're all wearing glasses. Very few of them will get uh, rent, uh, 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 you know LASIK surgery. Like you do LASIK surgery all the time. Why don't you do it? Because if 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 I have one eye that gets damaged, like my career's done. And so there's that part of it. You know, occasionally. Um, but I know a lot of plastic surgeons that have had plastic surgery done, um, facelifts when they get older and what have you. I know that a lot of my patients that come in for facelifts or a breast lift, you know, uh, they're fit people. They literally say, I never thought I'd be here. But, you know, um, growing, over, growing older is relentless. It just doesn't stop. And, you know, you, you never thought you'd be in a plastic surgeon's office. And then you say one day, oh, well, heck with it. I've got less in front of me than behind me. Um, I'm going to do it. So. So never say never. Never say never. I might, I might wind up getting my eyelids done and I might wind up with a facelift one day. But, um, you know, right now, you know, I mean, I get a lot of guys come in. They got a little bit of laxity. I'm starting to get a tiny bit under here. And, um, you know, they're like, I can't have that. And they want their facelift or they want a, a little procedure down here. But, no, I, have, I haven't had anything done yet. Okay. Also, uh, there is a paradox in plastic surgery where when people come to you, they have to be By the way, do you, know what a par you know, wait, do you know what a paradox is? Yes, I know. Uh, no, I, bet you, I, I bet you don't. Let me tell you what a paradox is. You walk into a room and there's two doctors standing there. It's a paradox. Oh, <laughs> okay. We're keeping it lighthearted. 
know that doctor jokes are the first cousin of daddy jokes. Yes, dad jokes for sure and uncle jokes. They're all in the same basket. In the same umbrella. Right. <laughs> all right. Go ahead. Yeah. So when people come to get the plastic surgery, they have to be generally healthy. Their heart, breathing, lungs. So we're having these healthy people willing to accept all the possible risks that may happen, go under anesthesia just in order to look purely aesthetically better. So was plastic surgery this popular before or what changed throughout the years? I think it's very, very popular now. One of my residents years ago was finishing up. I said, Roger, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to Beverly Hills. I said, Roger, there's a plastic surgeon on every corner in Beverly Hills. He said, you don't understand. He said, it's a different mindset there. He says, in Houston at that time, maybe one in 500 people got plastic surgery. In Beverly Hills, it's one and two, you know? So, you know, if, if, if you're in a town that has, you know, 10 million people, you're in, you're in Tokyo, you need a lot of plumbers, right? Things are changing. It's becoming, you know, more out there. Social media people are aware of it. Um, it, it we've, we've gone from the coast doing a higher uh, demographics of more people per capita get plastic surgery, and it's moved inland. It's moved to the more conservative, less uh, progressive uh, parts of the country. And so uh, we, here in Houston at least, we, um, you know, we've always had, you know, people that come into surgery that were not, you know, super wealthy, um, but that nose was just bothering them the whole life, and they're a secretary, and by gosh, I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to forego my vacation. And I'm going to do it. Now we see people come in, unfortunately, and you're sitting there looking at the patient and you're saying, and this is another part of, of what's, what's, what's the right thing to do, right? You know, someone comes in, you know they, they have modest means and they want a mommy makeover and it's going to send them back a lot of money. And it, it's, it's a, it's a, question I think we don't talk to ourselves enough about, and it's not talked about generally. Yes, more people are having plastic surgery, but I think there's a lot of pressure on people. You see people of limited means who have to have the best, the, the, the most, the latest iPhone and the big screen TV, and they've got to have their mommy makeover when they're done having babies. And you wonder, you know, maybe that money should have been put in retirement or to help your kids with education or, or something. But we've, our mindset has changed like, no, I, I deserve my mommy makeover because because I had babies. Well, I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy. I, I get it. It changes your body. And then you look at them. It's like, you're really not so bad. I mean, this is kind of fun. You just look at my mom, you know. So, you know, our, our value system is changing. And, and we're we're part of that whole thing. Um, uh, we're part of that process. And and. It, it hurts my soul sometimes when I see people. It's like, gosh, you in my mind, I'm saying you really ought to work on your teeth before you start considering a tummy tuck because that's going to be healthier for you and more important for you than whatever or, or big boobs than than getting something else done, um, you know, re putting money away for retirement or, 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 or whatever. So priorities change. Definitely. Yeah, I don't think you wanted to go in that direction, but that's something that bothers me, you know, as, yeah. as I see people doing what they're doing. So yes, more people are doing plastic surgery. It's much more common. Here's here's the stock answer. It's much more common. More people are doing it. And we have financing. You can come in and get it done and have no interest financing for 12 months. Is that a better answer? 
Oh, perfect. Just great. Okay, <laughs> let's go for the next one. Could you tell us what is the most important thing you learned throughout your career and life? I'll go back to what I said before. Well, no, I, I think there's two things. Um, the most important thing, you know, people say to me, what, what would you tell someone going, wanting, wanting to, you know, study hard and get into medical school, for example, or someone, you know, going, going to college? I think early in life, what I would tell people is get a good night's sleep. Don't go to bed super late. Get up early. Get a little bit of, of a workout. It could be a walk. Do something. Get yourself in a good rhythm. You'll you'll be much more productive. You'll be much healthier. You'll have less depression. Um, on and on and all the benefits of, of of having a good rhythm to your life. That's not being up all night and then you miss your classes in the morning and then you have bad relationships and then you're not healthy and you're starting to gain weight. You know, set the schedule and the whole thing right. So that's what I would say to anybody is is just you know be healthful be aware of your life and, and, and your body and take care of it. Um, the other thing I, I think that I, I like to speak about a lot is how to say no. As plastic surgeons, we make a very good living, you know, in, in the pecking order of, of doctors, you know, there's cardiovascular surgeons, neurosurgeons, the plastic surgeons, we, we make a, we make a lot of money. We were very, you know, well off as a guy in plastic surgery. Uh, I have to watch myself, um, you know, and it's, and it's, I can see over the years, particularly when I was younger, how it's easy to say yes when you should have said no. And people get in, guy, people get in trouble saying yes. So I think no, no to the, no to the super duper sports car, no to the super really big house, no to the jewels and the gems and the watches and the, you know, $10,000 bags. Um, and even when you can't afford it, it's not what makes you happy, right? It's, we, we all know this, but you know, it gets sucked in. I mean, it's short term happiness. Yeah. So, so learning how to say no to all those things that are just superficial, um, that are going to get you in trouble, that are going to ruin your marriage, that are going to take you away from your kids, uh, you know, um, you know, I'm going to go out and have fun, play eight hours of, of golf or five hours of golf and, Leave your kid home alone on a Saturday. I, I don't get that, you know, but some people do do that all the time. So uh, learning how to say no, uh, there's plenty of time for yes, but there's there's more things that will entice you that will lead you astray in life. Um, so, What was the hardest or the most challenging moment in your life that you just had to push it through? General surgery residency. I was I was I did general surgery at a, at a level one trauma center um, for one period. I was on call every other night on trauma call for 18 months straight. This was in the years before they limited hours that you could work at the hospital. So, you know, I mean, I, I've never been to war. I've never been a, 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 a combat guy. I can't even imagine what they're going through in, in, uh, in Ukraine, for example. But going through general surgery was when I did it. I had nice professors. They weren't real hard asses, but long hours. So 18 months straight of general surgery. This is what it's like. You wake up at your house. You leave your house at four or five in the morning. You go in, you see your patients. Then you go on rounds with your chief resident or your senior resident, you know, as a junior resident. Then you're in the operating room all day. Maybe you get a bite to eat. Maybe you don't. If you do, you're going to have to rush it. It's going to be wolf it down as fast as you can and finish up the day. And then 
you're on call that night and you're up all night long. Maybe you get an hour of sleep and then you're going all the next day again. And around four or five or six or seven at night, you get to go home. So now you've been up for uh, 24, 36 hours and you get to go home. And so you go home and you're, you're trying to stay awake and not get in an accident, not to take your foot off the brake at a red light and bump somebody. Um, and you get home and you walk in and you try and get something to eat and then you collapse. And then you wake up in the morning and you do it all over again for 18 months. So it's pretty weird that doctors are saying live healthy, sleep well, sleep enough when they're the ones that are not doing it or following those rules. When I finished general surgery, my wife said to me, okay, we're going to go out and practice and start, you know, making some money because we don't make a lot of money. And, um, mind you, when, when I was in general surgery, I got paid $1,200 a month. That was my, that was my pay. And then I said to her, maybe six months before I was supposed to finish up, I said, I think I'm going to do another fellowship or another residency. And she said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I said, I, I want to do plastic surgery. She said, why? I said, they're healthy. I said, I, I, I couldn't do trauma surgery anymore. I wasn't cut out for it because I couldn't leave when it was time to leave. If I had a patient sick, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to stay there and make sure they were okay. I didn't trust anyone to not screw it up. Um, and that wasn't very healthy on my part. Um, so yeah. It's a good thing you found something that will work for you. They, we live on healthy lives. You have to, you have to be able to prioritize. You have to be able to compartmentalize. They tell you when you're a surgeon, when you're a doctor, it's the patient with the disease, not you. So you don't take it home with you. And to a large extent, we do that, but sometimes we don't. We, I've had many, many sleepless nights when I've had a patient with a complication. It just, you know. You can't stay immune to it. You can't. You can't. So, you know, it's hard. It's, it's, it's tough sometimes. So we talked about this money, houses, cars. People are saying that all doctors have big egos, that they like to compete. They envy each other. Is that true? And does it happen in your profession just like it happens in any other? Of course it does. And to a larger degree, because we do very, a lot of us do very, very well. And a lot of us have to have that, that Ferrari and that BMW because it's a sign of success. If you come see me and my BMW is in there or my Beamer or, you know, whatever, or my Bentley or whatever, I must be in the right place because everyone's coming and they're making a lot of money, I, I suppose. Um, but, you know, marketing, marketing is hard. To, marketing works because it works. You know, they, we're, we're just susceptible to it, too. We just... You know, instead of buying that Chevrolet, now I can buy that even fancier car that fewer people have. I can wear that fancier watch that even fewer people have. And look, we're all we're all susceptible to it. We're just we're just at a different level. We're not billionaires, um, uh, but some are. And they, of course, they've got the the yacht and the plane and the whole thing. I don't have a yacht. I don't have a plane. But yeah, we're 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 susceptible to it too. And it just it just edges up with each each type of thing you do. You know, if you're a family practice doctor, you know, you're, you're making, you know, a very moderate, you know, income. I mean, and, and it varies. You have your own practice, you're in a rural area, you're in a central area. Doctors make a good living a lot better than, than a lot of professions. But there's all there's a whole graduated levels of, of salary within the field of medicine. Okay. And could you tell us what are some of the things that you think you can improve in or be better at? Oh, what can I be better at? Mm. I, there's nothing I can be better at. I'm perfect. Oh, just great. 
No, I, I, I think I could, I think I could be better. Oh gosh. So, sometimes, sometimes I think, um, I, I see too many patients in a day and I, and I constantly have to remind my staff and myself, slow down, slow down. People will wait to see you. Um, it's not that I'm afraid they're going to go someplace else. Sometimes we're concerned that people are going to cancel and they're going to, or they're going to reschedule or a kid gets sick. I mean, that happens all the time, especially these days. The kids get COVID, the kids get a bad sick sickness. Their moms, they, they have to reschedule. And so I don't want to sit there for two hours or an hour. I don't want to, you know, I want to see patients. So we sometimes add to our, our bookings just to make sure everything keeps along. I mean, I've got employees to pay and, and what have you. And then they all show up. And then I'm like, oh my God, I shouldn't have done this. I can't keep, you know, that kind of thing. I, I mean, I hate making people wait. I've, I've done it before, um, you know, so. Uh, the last question is, Dr. Mollower, was there a situation where you took a risk, didn't know what kind of outcome to expect, and what did it end up like? You felt like it was going to be good or did it end up bad? So what was kind of some risky situation that happened? Okay, so very early in my career, I was doing a lot of microsurgery, a lot of hand surgery, trauma surgery. I had a guy that came in to see me and um, he had, he worked at, at a factory and he had cut off his dominant thumb. He, he had, they attempted to replant it and it didn't work and it failed. So he had, you know, he, he lost his dominant thumb. Well, if you try and, and live your life without a thumb, particularly your dominant thumb, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. He actually came in uh, with clinical depression. He was suicidal. And I sent him to a dear friend of mine who's a psychiatrist and worked with him for about six months. And, and the psychiatrist, and she sent him back to me. She said, he's ready now. I said, really? She said, yeah. He came back. He said he was in a better place emotionally, mentally. Another, another example of preparing people. Sometimes I see women who come in who just lost their husband, you know, two months ago, and they're still, you know, in terrible shape and they want to facelift because they make them feel better. Like, no, we're not doing a facelift. You're going to get better. You're going to grieve for a while. But at any rate, this guy lost his thumb. So I planned a toe to hand transfer. So I was going to take his great toe off of his foot and put it on and reconstruct his thumb. This was back when I was doing that kind of work. We, we, I got a friend of mine to help me with the surgery. The surgery went out, came out great. It was terrific. He, he later on, he had pictures of him crushing a can with his thumb. I mean, you know, besides not being able to put his clothes on, he said, he said making love to his wife, he felt awkward and terrible and, and he, you know, he was humiliated and whatever. But in surgery, it, it was a, um, the, the vasculature was anomalous. In other words, it wasn't the usual vasculature. And we had to, we had to really kind of, I mean, there's people who do microsurgery that like, this is no big deal, but I didn't, you know, I didn't do it that often. I was doing it more than. Uh, but the, 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 the vasculature was very anomalous and we had to, you know, bring in some graphs and do a bunch of stuff uh, and it all worked out fine. But at that moment, at that point in my career, I was pretty young. I was, you know, and, and it wasn't I wasn't at a university. I wasn't operating under someone else. When you got on your own and you start doing big cases, those first, you know, few months, few years, you're like, I'm it. I don't have anybody I can count on. Right. And, and that one was particularly nerve wracking, but it turned out right. Wow, this story was amazing. I think we never heard anything like that similar. Thank you very much, Dr. Mollower, for joining us for one hour and a half. I think we had a great conversation. And uh, maybe in two weeks, next month, we can totally have another podcast and focus more on breast augmentation cases.
I know. I know. This is my pleasure. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, we, we covered a lot of territory. All right. Okay, doctor. Take care. Wish you a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for visiting. See you next time.